glorified in all that we say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be, uh, again, in the book of Ezra. Um, and uh, we're, we're coming to an end of, of Ezra, uh, getting ready to, to go into Nehemiah for a couple of weeks. And um, there's a handout in the bulletin because uh, this is one of those passages in the Bible, Ezra, Ezra 9 and 10. It's one of those passages in the Bible where I get a lot of questions about it. Um, and uh, because it, it's a difficult passage. Uh, and uh, it has to do with, it has to do with the, the people of Israel, the, the Jews, and their relationship to people, uh, the people of the lands. And so I put a, a, a handout in the bulletin just kind of breaking down some of the historical context of who these people were so that um, so I don't have to spend too much time talking about it. But I want to get, get right into uh, Ezra chapter 9 and, uh, and get to, into the narrative and then we'll talk about what it means and the implications and, and what, what's being said. So Ezra chapter 9 and verse 1. Um, after these things had been done, uh, the officials approached me and said, sorry. I can't preach wearing that. All right, Ezra, Ezra chapter 9 made my shirt look, my sweater look nice, but it makes my, my throat feel like I, I'm being strangled by another pastor. Anyway, um, the, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites... Uh, have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race, or the the holy seed is actually uh, what the the word means, um, has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, and this is the prayer that Ezra prays, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt and for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God might brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery for we are slaves yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem and now O God now O our God what shall we say after this 
We have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there shall be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. We are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. When we read this text and we, we read basically a situation where after the people of Israel have returned from exile and rebuilt the temple, and reestablished the worship of Jerusalem, um, someone, and we don't know who, came up with the idea that the best way to safeguard this was to intermarry with the people that lived in the land. Now in chapter 4, there had been a moment where the people of the land, the same term was used, came to the, the Israelites and said, can we build a temple because we worship your God just like you? Can we build alongside of you? And, and the, the, the governors, Zerubbabel, said no. And as a result, they fought against the people of Israel for 16 years to prevent them from building, finishing the temple. So now the temple's built, and everybody kind of goes back to that default. Okay, the temple's done, project's finished, now we can kind of relax and we can uh, let some things go. And the Jews find themselves, like we often do, in a situation that we probably, they probably never intended and dealing with consequences they never considered. They find themselves, they went down this road of what's going to guarantee the peace of our land? What's going to guarantee calmness so that we can worship, so that we can continue our temple worship, so we can, so we can live here in Jerusalem and Judea? What can we do to make sure that we can keep doing this good thing? And they come up with the idea of let's have some marriage alliances. That'll protect us. We can mix with these people and then they'll protect us and everything will be okay. And they find themselves now in a situation where they have mixed with a group that Ezra very accurately describes as practicing abominations. Now when we say abomination, we don't mean um, the smell of a, of a cereal bowl left in your, your child's bedroom for two weeks. All right. Well, that is abominable. That's not what we're talking about. Um, it's it's not that it's not that situation. An abomination um, is is tied to the the worship, the sacrifices that people conducted. Now, when when we read about the sacrifices in Jerusalem, you read about um, how the sacrifices were a sweet savor to the Lord God. Um, that the smell of those sacrifices it was pleasing to Him. Well, an abomination is the exact opposite of that. And the reason that the abominations, the reason that the worship of these people were called abominations was because of the way that they worshipped. 
I've mentioned before that the Canaanites had a very ecstatic, very, um, very carnal way of worshiping. Um, they they uh, married their young women to the gods and they, they practiced all kinds of fornication and, and disgusting sexual practices. Uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites were well known for human sacrifice. Um, that they would, in a situation of crisis, sacrifice the oldest child of a family. Um, and this was a prom- prominent, uh, it had, I, Jenna, I know you're looking at Caitlin, it had to be a boy, so it would be Daniel, so it's okay. Um, the, the, uh, the, uh, but they would, they would routinely do this, and this was an abomination. In fact, one of the things that made the Israelites so different from the Canaanites around them was what was called the redemption of the firstborn. While the firstborn belonged to the God of, God of Israel, the people were allowed to redeem their firstborn, not sacrifice them by offering instead a lamb, a depiction of Christ's substitution for us for our sin, as sinners. And that, that was one of the things that made them unique. The Israelites did not practice human sacrifice. Well, they weren't supposed to. There are a couple times where they do it. It never works out well. All right, Just, just take that off the list of things to do. It's just not a thing to do. Um, but these people, they practiced these abominations. And probably, you know, it was a pragmatic decision. It was like, well, it'll, you know, it, it's not that bad. We, we'll marry in and, you know, we'll influence them. They would never in a million years influence us. We're, you know, we're, we're going to keep everything. Uh, our side is going to be great. And, and, um, and, and I don't know what the logic, I mean, it's very obvious that it was men making these decisions um, because... Uh, they were like, well, you know, if we, we let our sons marry their daughters, our sons will be in charge. They won't have any influence over them whatsoever. You know, and if they had asked their wives, their wives would have told them that's not how it works. Um, you know, but, but this, this mixing was occurring, and when it's brought to Ezra's attention, and it could not have been uh, too long after this had been going on, but when it's brought to Ezra's attention, he responds. And I want to talk about his response, uh, his confessional faith. Because, Paul, uh, because Ezra gives us a template for responding to ourse- finding ourselves in a situation that we never intended, dealing with consequences we'd never thought about, we never uh, anticipated. When sin, when something seems like a good idea and starts to take us down the road of sin, Ezra's response to this, um, it may not be for everybody, but it's a solid template for how to deal with you finding yourself in that situation. Because I don't know about you, when you find yourselves in a situation that you never intended, it's very difficult to figure out the way to extract yourself from that situation. Um, it's very difficult to find your way uh, back out of that. How many of you have ever tried to assemble something that the book, the, the handbook, or the instructions very definitely said two people required? And you went, I can handle this. This is not a problem. I remember being a kid and my father buying us a, an above ground pool. And my grandfather, who was a, a self-trained engineer, bringing in all of his equipment, leveling out the ground and laying the blocks. And then we were going to put this pool together. And so he, my dad had me and my two sisters, my older sister, my younger sister, and my mom. 
And I think that Kristen, my younger sister, was probably eight or nine years old um, at the time. I'm not sure exactly when this happened. Um, and I don't know if you've ever seen an above-ground pool be assembled. Not, not the ones you just you know, inflate the, and just fill it with water and it just comes up. Um, but an actual full, full-on thing. There's a reason that people get paid to do this. And, and so we're, there's three kids. I mean, if, so if Kristen was eight, I would have been 11, and my older, my older sister would have been 14. So obviously, we're very adept construction people. Um, and, and my mother and my dad didn't always get along very well. Um, and so, uh, so they're, they're, there's the two of them, and my dad is trying to assemble this because my dad is one of those people that doesn't like to read the instructions and thinks he has a better way to do things. And, and my mother is one of those people that always reminds someone like that that they're doing it wrong. And, and the three of us were there. And my younger sister, anytime there was a difficult task involving her and any kind of physical labor, always had to go to the bathroom. You know how that, that younger sibling is. Um, and I'm impatient with incompetence, except my own. So, um, you know, so even at 11, I was like, you know, you should really be doing it. I just have a suggestion, you know, kind of a thing. My voice was higher, you know. Anyway, um, we spent an entire day, like from 8 in the morning until it got dark, trying to put this dumb swimming pool together. My younger sister going, I had to go to the bathroom, 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 I had to go to the bathroom. My dad, shut up, we almost here, we almost got it. And we got to a point where we had almost everything together. You guys all know what's going to happen here. And then something, he was like, I got it. I got it. It's perfect. Now, obviously, anytime you have to back away from a large construction project and go, I've got it. I've got it. Nobody touch it. You know that it's not together right. And of course, naturally, the whole thing collapsed. All right. And we had to start all over again. Kristen was able to go to the bathroom, take care of that. Um, my mother went and blew off some steam and, and then we came back together and we finally did get it. I, I think if I remember correctly, we called my grandfather who worked for a company called BOC gases and built giant gas separation plants for a living. So he understood complicated procedures and my grandfather walked in and said, where are the instructions? (laughs) And then walked everybody through the steps and we put the pool together and we had it for several years. Well, you know what it's like, all right? to be in the middle of something that you didn't really intend to get in the middle of it, but now you're in the middle of it? And how do we extract ourselves out of that situation? How do I get myself out of this scenario? Maybe it was, it was just, I just lied a little bit in order to impress people, and now I have to demonstrate capacity skills that I don't actually have. So what do I do there? Um, you know, it's, it, how do we find ourselves in these situations? We've kind of gone down the road, and Ezra kind of gives us a template for how to deal with it. Now, it should not surprise us that the very first piece of this in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, um, is identifying the problem, the identification of the sin. What's the sin that underlies the decision that took me down the road? You say, well, there was no sin. Well, uh, we all say that, all right? Very rarely do we choose sin, but, but often there is sin, and it can be something as simple as the sin of self-deceit. Deceiving yourself into believing you can handle something you can't handle. Deceiving yourself into believing that, you know, I, I'll figure it out along the way. I can just, if I can just kind of, I, I can just kind of, you know, manipulate my, well, my way into this, 
then I'll, I'll figure out how to, to live it out. I just fake it till I make it. And, and Ezra identifies the sin. He ident- they identify it specifically. The officials approach him and they say, look, we, we've not separated from the abominations of the land. There's a problem. And if we don't begin with identifying the problem, if we don't begin with identification of sin, big or small, we're always going to be putting band-aids on situations instead of seeking true healing. But then the second thing he does is consideration of the situation. In verse 3, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and my beard. Now, we don't generally respond that way. But this was a significant moment for Ezra, who was the high priest, to announce to the people this was a serious situation. And the solution was going to take some consideration. He identifies the sin, but then he has to consider the path they're going to take. Because so often when we identify a sin in our lives, we we want to take the shortest possible path to the solution. Think about Cain and Abel. Cain, and back in Genesis, uh, Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, they bring offerings to the Lord, and Abel's offering is acceptable, and Cain's offering is not acceptable, and Cain's solution to the problem was to kill the guy that was doing better than him. Because if he was the only person, then his offering had to be acceptable. That's the easy solution as opposed to admitting he was doing something wrong and correcting his behavior, just remove the competition. And we can see that in human behavior all the time. We, we look for the simplest solution to a problem, the easiest solution to the problem. If you've ever, and I'm using a lot of construction things, but if you've ever been putting together a pre-assembled piece of furniture you bought at Walmart, you know that every once in a while you encounter a situation where somebody was clearly measuring with a metric ruler when they should have been measuring with a a standard English ruler, and there's a hole that's like this far off. And our initial response to that is never, maybe I put it together wrong. Our initial response to that is always, man, they they manufactured this incorrectly. Because the error has to be on on the shoulders of the factory that was producing thousands of these and not the one guy that's having a problem. So Ezra takes a moment and he considers identification of the sin, consideration of the problem, consideration of the situation. Where are we? Where, Where are we in space? Where are we on this journey? What needs to be done? And as Ezra considers this, a group of people gather with him. Um, they, they sit with him and at the evening sacrifice so he sits all day long thinking about this I sat appalled until the evening of sacrifice now he's not sitting there just crying and weeping he's thinking about Ezra is thinking about how do we deal with this situation because consideration of our, of our sin all right, meditation on our condition is not just to sit there and go, boy, we're in trouble now. Oh, this is bad. How are they? And, and don't we often do that when we find ourselves in a situation we spend all of our time focused on the situation? This is a bad situation. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. This is bad. This is bad. And we work ourselves up into a, into a fervor rather than sitting down and saying, how do we fix this? 
How do I get from here to where I need to be? And Ezra is considering this for the people. And then in verses 6 and 7, he begins to speak. And what Ezra has to say, his first statement, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And then he talks about from the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt. Look at what Ezra does. Identification of the sin, consideration of the situation, and then affirmation of the reality that he finds himself in. I contend that this is often the hardest thing in the world for us to admit. To openly affirm that we are in a situation that is sinful or broken. We might be willing to let somebody else tell us things are wrong and nod our head. Mm, yeah, mm, that's it. Mm. But to actually utter the words, I was wrong, I am in sin. We don't like to do that. Now, maybe it's just men. But it is hard to, for me to admit when I am wrong. It happens so seldom. I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. Admitting that you are wrong, admitting that you have failed, Admitting that you maybe started out with good intentions, but along the way find yourself in a situation that has consequences that you're going to have to deal with. That's hard. And to admit it in the positive, to affirm it, not just to confess it. You caught me! Right? Uh, Halloween just passed. I guarantee that none of the parents had any issues with their children eating more candy than they were allowed to eat. I'm looking at you, Nathan. But didn't we all do that? I mean, as kids, if you got to go trick-or-treating, man, or Easter morning when your parents, before parents discovered calories, right? I mean, Easter morning, my house would be full of candy and it would all be devoured before church. Because we're Italian. Food doesn't sit still in my household. We find ourselves down the road, and, we, and what did you do? You did this thing. No, no, I didn't. I, I don't know how that happened. I remember once as a kid, I know I'm telling a lot of stories of me as a kid, I was just reflecting about my childhood, and <laughs> I would have paddled me way more often than my parents did. Um, my method of cleaning my bedroom was to basically turn myself into a human bulldozer and push everything into my closet and then lean against the door and slide it in place and then tell my mother I was done. And, I, and this cannot be, but I, I remember as a child the doors of my closet actually bulging out. It, it could not have been. You know how your memory plays tricks on you. Um, and I, my mother would walk in, and she obviously knew what I did because I did it all the time. And she would go, is everything in the closet? No. And then she would open the closet. Things would fall out. There would be like a tidal wave of He-Man and Transformers and everything else. What did you do wrong? Oh, 
I didn't clean correctly. Was that the correct answer? The answer was, A, I disobeyed. And B, it wasn't that I, I, I chose to do it wrong. And admitting that I chose to do it wrong was not within my capacity as a kid. And sometimes it's not within our capacity as adults. We, we, we confess things in such a way that we kind of like make it sound like we really had no choice. Instead of affirming what is wrong. Ezra says, this is piled up. This is utter shame. And he makes it, he frames it in such a way that, that it's hard to miss. He says, look, you, God, you, you, you spared us. You gave us all this great, and we have done nothing but, but the wrong thing. And then in this moment, in verse 8, he says, in a brief moment, in a brief moment, you, you, you gave us an opportunity to brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. And what did we do? What did we do? Identification of the sin, consideration of the situation, affirmation of the reality. And then Paul, then Ezra, I don't know why I keep saying Paul. Ezra takes a step that is so hard. These two steps. First, affirmation of the reality. And then humiliation before God. You gave us this moment, God. You extended your steadfast love. In verse 9, you granted us some reviving. What shall we say after this? We have forsaken your commandments. He buries himself. He admits the reality. He, he humiliates himself before God. He say, well, I don't want to be humiliated. I mean, honestly, if, if there's one being on earth that we should humble ourselves before, it's God. If there's one place that we should be, it is humbled before our God. Given all the opportunities that they were hurt, they had, they broke the commandments and intermarried with people who practiced the abominations. Now, it was not marrying the women that was wrong. It was marrying them and continuing the abominations that was wrong. We know from Scripture that people from these groups could marry into Israel and become followers of the one true God. Uh, David's great-grandmother Ruth is a perfect example. She's a Moabite. Uh, the Moabites worshipped the God who demanded human sacrifice. And that's not just from the Bible. That's actually inscribed in Moabite texts. They were proud of it. But when Ruth chooses to join with the God of Israel, she abandons all of that. She takes the God of Israel as her God, the people of God as her people. She enters into a covenant and she joins with them. And that happens all through the Old Testament. One of David's uh, right-hand men is a Hittite, Uriah the Hittite, who David eventually has killed, but let's not get into that. Um, there, he brings him in. The Kenites, there's, there's these groups of people that they choose to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and are welcomed into the congregation. But as long as they are continuing in the abominations, why wouldn't God be angry? Why wouldn't he be angry? Everybody's like, why is God angry with them? 
Why wouldn't he be angry with them? They continue in these abominations and Israel is giving a blessing upon it. They're entering into marriage covenants with people unrepentant about their worship. And all of this is just preparation. These four things, which I don't know if you noticed, but they rhymed, so there was a lot going into that. Identification of sin. Affirmation, consideration of the situation. Affirmation of the reality and humiliation before God. Those are just preparation for change. They aren't the change themselves. They aren't the change. Just saying, God, we did, I did something wrong is not change. No matter how humble it is, no matter how realistic it is, if we just keep going through our lives saying, God, I did something wrong, but never altering our lifestyle, our thoughts, our processes, is there any real transformation going on? I mean, if I walked around and I, and I would just alternately just punch people in the face and then say I was sorry, pop, I'm sorry about that, and walk to another person, pop, punch them in the face, I'm sorry about that, pop, I'm sorry about that, left, left hook, right cross, sorry about that, I shouldn't be punching people in the face. Is there any change? Is there any transformation there? The process of preparation is not confession or repentance until we acknowledge our sin to God and change our behavior to conform with his will. It is not true confession. All of the admitting of our guilt, all of the humbling of ourselves before God is not true confession until we acknowledge our sin to God and change our behavior, believing that he can empower us to do this because it is his will. Other than that, it's just words. It's just words. And words are not reality no matter how often we repeat them. Saying, saying I'm sorry is not a reality until I change. Saying I believe something is not a reality until that belief results in action in my life. Saying I'm a Christian doesn't mean anything until I am conformed to the way of Christ. Until I choose to walk the path of Christ. You can live in a garage that don't make you a car, Billy Sunday used to say. You can, work at, you can visit McDonald's it doesn't make you a hamburger. I mean, not even the things they serve are hamburgers, but you can claim to be something. You can say something is true, but until you actually live it out, you don't know whether it's true. I was reflecting as I was clearing leaves out of our yard, which 2020 even seems like leaves tripled. I was clearing leaves and I was thinking about when I first started. This, this past week was my 16th anniversary as the pastor. Um, and I was remembering when, when uh, because, I think because Greg shared in the, in the vision meeting about calling the call um, and you know, he talked about how they, he, if you listened very carefully to what he said, uh, we fell in love with his family. 
didn't say they fell in love with me. They just liked Ariel. She was cute, and, and Nicole is awesome. And so they're like, well, he comes with the package. We'll, we'll take him. Um, back then, I refused. I mean, openly refused to give people parenting advice because my daughter was three months old. Well, I don't know what to do with my kids. I am not the person to talk to. Because whatever I think about parenting, I haven't worked my way through it yet. And I would send to people, to people who had older kids, who had grandkids. I was like, you want to talk to people that actually know what they're doing or know what they did wrong. I'm not even aware of the mistakes I'm bound to make. And now having a, a, a teenager, I can look back at, at parenting younger kids and I can say, you know, this is, this is a biblical principle we employed. This is, this is an approach we, we took. Um, but I'm still not going to tell people how to parent their adult kids. Um, because all the words, they don't have any substance until there's action tied to them. And that ties to the parenting skills, but it ties to our our beliefs about Christians. It ties to our confessions of sin. It ties to everything in our lives. If there is one thing Ezra was not, it was all talk. Ezra was a man who took action on his beliefs, whose confession had legs. He was willing to live at a place where a, a junction of, of human journey and divine inspiration and say, this is where we go, this is how we live. In ver- chapter 10 and verse 1, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, and the people wept bitterly. And and Shechaniah, the son of Yehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God, have married foreign women from the people of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. They took action. They didn't just say we were wrong. They said, let's fix the problem. Now, just so you're aware of what is going on here, all right? because some people interpret this the wrong way. Hebrew divorce law, and divorce was allowed under the law of Moses, under the condition that you had to provide for, if, if it was not an act of fornication uh, or adultery, you were required to provide for your wife and children for the rest of their lives. These men are are willing to commit for the rest of their lives to deal with the consequences of their sinful action justly. We will put away our wives. That means that they will no longer have relationship relations with those women, but they will provide for them for the rest of their lives. As long as those women are alive, as long as those children, financially they will provide for them. They're willing to take a huge sacrifice, willing to make a huge oath to make things right. Now, one of the problems with finding yourself in a situation that you never intended to be in 
and dealing with consequences you never planned for is that those consequences do not go away. When you get right with God, you still have to deal with the consequences of your actions. That's not a reason not to get right with God. But the step of dealing with it, the step of repentance, the step of getting beyond our words of saying something was wrong and actually doing change, means that we man up or woman up and face the consequences of our actions, live with the reality of it, but we still conform our lives to the will of God. We don't have to like it. We don't even have to be perfect at it. But we have to change. So if there's a big idea that comes out of this text, there's a twofold one. I would say, first of all, try to avoid winding up being in situations where you're going to have to deal with consequences like this. That's always best plan. Um, My dad used to say, planning and preparation prevents you from being stupider than you really are. My dad was a very kind man. But when you find yourself in that situation... You face the reality, you face what it is, you prepare, you change, and you conform to the will of God, and you deal with the consequences. I know so many people that think becoming a Christian is going to be a reset button. I can just forget about everything that happened before. No, you don't. You don't, you don't get to just, well, I confess that. I don't have to deal with it anymore. It's all handled. It's all taken care of. All sin echoes because we're human beings. So ideally, we want to not get into sin. But when we do and we, conform, we repent, truly repent, we deal with the consequences of our sin. And we all have to deal with that. So it's not like... It's something we have to keep secret. The people at church don't know I'm a sinner. Yes, we do. We do. Because we're sinners too. The, The pastor would never believe the things I was involved in. Yeah, I would. I've got my own shadows. I've got my own darknesses. I've got my own blind spots. We all do. We all do. But true repentance, once we identify and we confirm and we affirm and we humiliate ourselves before God, we have to change. That change has to be real. You ever wondered why 12-step programs tend to be so effective only with people who are actually willing to change. You take an addict who doesn't want to admit he's an addict and take him to a 12-step program, and what will that addict do? He may go mechanically through the process, and, and hopefully one day it triggers and clicks, but for the most part, they just go through it. How many of you have ever seen um, Beautiful Mind? Ever seen the movie Beautiful Mind? It's about a a genius mathematician dealing with uh, paranoid schizophrenia 
who, who even though everybody tells him that the voices he hears are not real and the, picture, the people that he sees are not real people, he just refuses to acknowledge it because to him, it's not true. So he goes through psychiatric treatment. He goes through all these processes. He, everybody's trying to fix his problem and everything, but he just keeps falling, slipping back into his paranoia until one day he realizes that a little girl never ages. And he finally realizes there is actually something wrong. And one of the last moments of the movie, it's, if you haven't seen this, Russell Crowe is in this movie. There's a person who comes to present him with a Nobel Peace Prize. Or Nobel, uh, not Nobel Peace Prize, uh, Nobel, uh, it's the Nobel Prize in Mathematics, I think it is, or Economics. And um, the person comes to him, and he's coming out of a class, and the guy comes, Dr. So-and-so, and he grabs one of his students, and he brings him over, he goes, can you see him? And then he has the, and the student confirms it, and then he has a conversation with him. Realizing there's something wrong, and then taking the steps to deal with that, that's repentance. But we have to see it as real. We have to commit ourselves to the reality of it. We don't have to like it, but it's true. And Ezra calls Israel to make a very difficult, very costly choice to honor their God. And they respond with true repentance. And that means change. So often you hear repentance defined as um, turning away from your sin. I would propose to you, and this is something to process and think about this week, that repentance is not turning away from your sin. Repentance is turning toward Christ. And you can't face him and your sin at the same time. If we focus on honoring God, we will find that our sins become illuminated and it is much easier for us to confess and deal with them when we are focused on him. And you can read that in Ezra 9 and 10. The focus is on God. And the response is the correction, the confession, the correction, and the movement, the change that occurs. You can change your life. You can try to change your life without genuine conviction, genuine confession, and you might be able to handle it for a while. But if you want to change your life and follow Christ, it has to begin with all that preparation I talked about, identifying it and, and affirming it, humbling ourselves, and then changing into conformity with him. That's true repentance. Conformity with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are and always will be sinful. Left to our own devices, we pursue our own desires. We, we fight against your Spirit's leading. We seek the easy path. We rely on ourselves 
Father, you define what is righteousness and what is sin. We really have no say on that standard, although we always try. You define the path of following you. And you empower us to follow you through your spirit. We are not always perfect. We are not always um, honest with ourselves and with others. We stumble and we struggle and we fall. And yet you revive us. You give us moments and openings and realities. And you teach us your truth. And you give us opportunity to change. You are always a God of steadfast love. You are always willing to conform, to transform us and renew us. Lord, help us to seek you. Lord, to celebrate our time walking with you. To find joy in being near you and, and seeing you work. And give us the strength to confess our sins, to, trans, to be transformed, to pour ourselves out to you and be changed. When the need arises, when the time calls, when the conviction is manifest. We desire to be your people, imperfect, yet redeemed, broken and yet healing. Lord, may you be glorified in all we do and say. We pray this in Jesus' name.